So as you may remember, we were in the middle of a sermon series. We took a little one-week break, but now we're going to be returning to that sermon series that we were working our way through. Uh, We've been looking at lessons for the American church. So we've sort of been looking at the American church generally, and certainly we as a church have our our strengths if we think of the American church and sort of what's a part of our culture is the American church. We have areas where we're strong, we're good, we're solid. But as with the church in any place, we certainly also have our areas where maybe we're a little bit weak, where maybe we could stand to learn a lesson from the church in other parts of the world, where maybe they have strengths, where we're weak. Uh, We certainly have areas where we can grow, and sort of that's what we've been taking a look at as a part of this series. Uh, And today specifically, a little bit tying in with the song that we just sang, what we're going to be taking a look at today uh, is the fact that I would say the American church... All too often, while we understand that God is all-powerful, we we know this in our minds, and we know he certainly can do anything, he certainly can work miracles, is very much capable of it, I would say all too often our default mindset is, yes, he can do it, but he's not all that likely to. You know, that's sort of the one in a million, yeah, you know, there are those instances where God works powerfully and miraculously, uh, but, you know, that's not going to happen in my life, right? You could take some sort of situation, and I could certainly say this for myself, and probably many of you could say it for you, that, that maybe you have this mindset, but... You know, take the scenario of maybe you have some sort of illness, maybe it's serious, and you know, you come before the Lord in prayer and you say, God, you know, please bring wondrous healing, heal me miraculously of this illness, this disease. Probably that's something we would do if we're in that situation. But probably in the back of your mind, you're kind of thinking, you know, really, what's the likelihood of that? Of course, God's capable of that. We know that. He could certainly do that. But sort of at the same time, even as we're praying that, we're probably thinking, Yeah, probably not going to be the case for me. Probably God isn't going to show up in some sort of powerful way, work a miracle. And instead, I'm probably going to be relying upon the doctors and modern medicine, and hopefully that works out. And so maybe you pray along those lines, and hopefully the doctors give them wisdom and this and that. And that's perfectly fine to pray that way. But I think all too often our mindset in the American church is God can do miracles, but we sort of expect, yeah, that's not going to happen. We're not likely to see that. And I'd say that that's really the wrong mindset to have, but really, rather, our mindset should be not to the extent that, oh, we pray for a miracle, and now we think, in a sense, we're in control of God, and we're going to force his hand, and now he has to do a miracle. I'm claiming a miracle, and it's certain, and it's sure, and God has to do this. And there are certainly parts of the Christian church that wants to say that that's the way things operate. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when we pray for something, when we come before the Lord in our lives, maybe we're seeking some sort of healing, something miraculous, just to use that example, right? Our mindset should be that of what I would call a sort of hopeful expectation. Not to the extent that we're sort of putting the Lord to the test and saying, you have to do this. But where our mindset is that of God is certainly capable of working a miracle. And not only is he capable of it, but rather there's a reasonable degree of likelihood that God will really show up in this situation, do a miracle, do something wondrous and powerful, and bring healing or whatever the situation is, work in a miraculous way in that situation. And that doesn't mean that God is necessarily going to. He's certainly going to work in his ways in accordance with his will, what he desires. And so we can't say, oh, guaranteed, you know, if I pray for a miracle, God's certainly going to do that. That may not be his plan. That may not be his will. But as we come before the Lord, as we seek something miraculous in in our lives or the lives of a loved one or whatever it might be, there should be this sense of sort of hopeful expectation, not sort of putting the Lord to the test, not that you have to do this, Lord, but sort of 
expecting that there's a reasonable likelihood of God actually showing up, not a one in a million, but a reasonable likelihood of God actually in love and kindness toward us as his people, really showing up and doing something powerful and miraculous. And I would say we in the American church have sort of lost sight of this, that hopeful expectation of the miraculous in our lives. And I'd say probably that's why we don't see all that much in regard to miracles in our lives and all around us. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I'd say in many ways we might not expect the miraculous because we feel like, well, we don't see it happening all around us. But I'd say we don't see it happening all around us because we don't have the faith to believe that God really is going to show up and do those miracles. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I want to dive into Scripture and say, well, you know, what what does God's Word have to say on the matter of the miraculous? Uh, And we're going to be looking in Numbers. This is a long passage, I know that, but bear with me. We're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14. So chapter 13, right at the beginning of verse 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 14. Uh, I'll sort of interject at points, but this is really a perfect story to highlight, in a sense, what we're talking about here uh, in regard to the miraculous, God showing up, doing something powerful. Uh, And really what our mindset should be in the midst of that. And, and of course, as I've been talking about, uh, having that hopeful expectation is is really the mindset we should have. But let me read this for us. This is Numbers, again, chapter 13 is where we're starting, verse 1. And it said, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So I'll sort of pause, I'll set the context. Maybe in your mind you can already figure out the context. But so, right, the Lord has has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, It's now sort of that time where they're on the verge of entering into the promised land, and they're supposed to enter in at this time. Of course, things don't go so smoothly for Israel, and they wind up having to wander around in the desert for another 40 years uh, because they weren't faithful to the Lord. But if they had been faithful, this would have been the time to, to, of course, take possession of the land, to enter into it. Uh, And so, well, you know, if you're going to go and and conquer a a territory, what's a good, wise thing to do? Well, go spy out the land. So that's what happens here. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who are heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zachur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of uh, Vophsi. From the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Machai. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. 
and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Right, so they're given their orders, go spy out the land, basically find out all you can. You know, are these people strong? Are they weak? Do they have nice, well-fortified cities that might be a little tougher to conquer or, you know, maybe not so well-fortified? Are they big, strong, numerous? Right, is the land good, fertile? Find out all that information. And it says, now is the time of the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Right, So it's a great land. It flows with milk and honey. It's fertile. It's good soil. This is a place where you would want to live. Right, That's the report about the land. And they go on. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. Oh, I read this. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, verse 28 here, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Right? So basically, it's sort of like, you know, here's their, their, their summation of, of their report and what they've spied out. The land's good. It's great. That's wonderful. But the people there are awfully strong, right? They're giants. They're big. They have great warriors. They have fortified cities. They're thinking is sort of here along human lines of, we, we can't beat these guys. They're too strong. And, and from a human perspective, maybe they're right, but they're forgetting, of course, that God's the one who's going to go with them. God's the one who's going to fight for them and bring the victory, right? They need to trust in God, have faith in him, that he can work a wondrous miracle. He's promised them this land. They ought to trust in him, believe that he really, truly can work a miracle and give them the victory and give them this land. But of course, they doubt that. And we'll read about that. We'll read on. So here's what they said. Right? This is verse 30, where we left off. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. Right? Caleb gets the picture here. He gets it. Yeah, okay, they're strong. They, they have well-fortified cities. But no worries. God's with us. We can take it. Right? We can, be, we can be victorious over these people with God's help. But, 31, then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, 
who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Right? So they even twist the truth there. Right? It's not just, oh, the enemy, well, he's got well-fortified cities. They're huge. They're big. They're going to be tough to conquer. But now they say, hey, because we're so afraid to go up against them, let's just sort of warp the truth, and we'll even say the land is bad. You know, It just devours its inhabitants. It's terrible. It's not fertile. There's just no reason to want to go into this territory, because they don't want to be the ones to go up and fight that battle. They don't trust God to go and fight for them and bring the victory, and so they're doubting, and they say, hey, it's better not to go up and fight, so they give this poor report, of course. Now, reading on, this is now into chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Again, he's trusting in God here. Right? They're not saying, oh, we're humanly capable of, of defeating them. We have better tactics or we have better troops, better armor, better weaponry. Right? We, humanly speaking, oh, we can take them. Rather, no, he's trusting in the Lord. Right? He's trusting that God is going to do a miraculous thing. Humanly speaking, maybe they couldn't win that battle. Maybe they couldn't have a victory. But he's trusting that God's going to show up do a miracle. And of course, that's what God would have done had they been faithful, but, but of course, they're not faithful. And we know that. But reading on here. Verse 8. I know I already read this, but I'll pick it back up there. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land For they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Not exactly the response they should have had. They probably should have said, you're right. We're going to be faithful. Let's trust God. He'll do a miracle for us. He'll fight for us, and we'll go up and be victorious. But they say, "Mm, yeah, let's just stone these guys. Maybe get some new leaders for us. We'll go back to Egypt. It'll be great. So, reading on. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Right? If you even think of the context here, you might think, well, you know, is it a lot to expect that God's going to fight for them and, and bring victory? But if you think of the story from the whole road out of Egypt, right, all of the plagues that God did, how he led them out powerfully with a mighty hand, and all along the way through the wilderness, all the miracles, all the powerful things that God had done, all the ways he worked powerfully, miraculously for the sake of his people, you think, surely that would give them a mindset of, hey, God's done these wondrous things for us before. He's worked great miracles. This is nothing for him. But of course, they forget all those things. They have no regard for them. They're not faithful to the Lord. 
Reading on verse 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptian, Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Right, so now we see their consequences, right? The people of Israel, well, they weren't so faithful, right? We know Joshua, you have Caleb, you have the faithful ones, and they'll get to enter into the promised land. But for all those who said, oh, no, you know, we don't want to follow their, believe their report. We don't want to follow them. Let's just, let's stone them. Let's get some new leaders. We'll go back to, to Egypt, right? We won't go into this land because surely God can't fight for us and bring the victory. For them, there's consequences, right? They don't get to experience this wondrous blessing of inheriting, right? Entering into this promised land, taking possession of it, inheriting that. They lose out on this blessing from God. And of course, there are consequences for them. They're going to wander around in this wilderness for another 40 years till they die. And then the next generation, well, they'll get to go into the promised land and inherit that possession. But now reading on verse 25. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. 
And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Right? They receive uh, an even greater consequence. They don't even get 40 more years before they die, or up to 40 more years. But rather, they, of course, are killed right then and there by plague because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, because they didn't trust in him that he would lead them in victory against the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And instead, of course, they led the people astray. They brought that false report, led the people of Israel into unfaithfulness. But now reading on. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up into the height went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Right, so... Right. Finally, they figure, oh, well, I guess if you say God's going to be with us and he'll fight for us, well, then we'll go. Okay, you finally convinced us. We'll go up. We'll fight. And, 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 of course, the response is, no, no, no. You missed your chance, right? You've been unfaithful. There are consequences. You're to, of course, wander in the land for 40 years, right? You, your generation, you won't get to inherit the land except for, for Joshua, except for Caleb. Um, and so that's your, the, those are the consequences. But they say, no, we're still going to go up and fight. And, and of course, God's response is, oh, I'm not going to go and fight with you. So let's see how you fare. And, of course, they don't fare so well. They're defeated, uh, and they don't take possession of the land, of course. But I know it's a long story, but it really highlights, uh, in a sense, what we're talking about. And I sort of want to show that, show how it highlights this. In a sense, it's very much a similar situation that we find ourselves in, you know, in, in various times in life. Where, right, you think of the situation here where God is going to do a miracle. Or they're certainly seeking a miracle. In this case, of course, God has promised that he will bring victory for the people of Israel, right? They lay there, right, on the edges of the promised land, and it's time to take possession to enter into it. And they can't do it on their own. They can't accomplish this victory on their own. They need a miracle from the Lord. Of course, in their case, it's been promised to them. God has said, I will give you this land. I will allow you to take possession of it. I will fight for you. But what's their response, right? They don't trust God. They fail to have faith in him that he really will show up, do this wondrous miracle, even in spite of the fact that time and time and time again, literally in their lives, right before them, right before their very eyes, they've seen God work wondrous miracles. Even in spite of all that, they say, we just don't trust you, God. We don't believe that you're actually going to do this. We don't expect that you're actually going to show up as we go up there to fight these people who have their fortified cities. They're big. They're strong warriors. As we go up to do that, we don't really believe that you're actually going to show up and do something miraculous for us. And so they think we're going to fall by the sword. So they decide not to be faithful. They doubt God. They fail to have faith in him that he will show up and do this miracle. And of course, there are consequences for them. The consequences are they don't get to experience this blessing that God had in store for them of entering into the promised land, taking possession of it, uh, this wondrous good land that flows with milk and honey. They miss out on that. And instead, they're going to wander around in a desert, in the wilderness, until they perish. And then the next generation will get, of course, to experience the blessing of entering into that promised land. 
right? And think oftentimes in our lives, we're in similar situations, right? Take the situation that I used before. It's a good one of imagine you have some sort of sickness and, right, you're seeking a miracle from the Lord. Maybe, you know, the prognosis isn't great and, and that, you know, you need God to work some sort of miracle to bring healing. Now, he hasn't promised it to you. I realize in the case of Israel, he's promised, hey, I will give you this land. It's certain. I will fight for you. I will take you into this land. But nonetheless, we might come before the Lord. We have some sort of illness, right? And we come before the Lord seeking for him to bring about a a wondrous miracle in our lives to do something great. And, And that's not to say that he will, he won't. But I think all too often in that situation, we're like the Israelites, where even if we pray, Lord God, do something wondrous, work a miracle, you're capable of it. Our mindset sort of in the back of our minds is, he's not going to do that. Just like the Israelites, you know, he's not going to fight for us. He's not going to give us the victory. He's not going to lead us into this promised land. And I think often we have that mindset. We, we might come before the Lord. We might pray something big and grand and wondrous, pray for some miracle. But sort of at the very same time in our heart of hearts, we're thinking, God's not going to do it. God's not going to show up. Right? He's not going to do something miraculous. There isn't that hopeful expectation. Not that we want to put the Lord to the test, but a hopeful expectation that there's a real likelihood this great and good and powerful God will show up and do something great. Right? Rather, we've sort of already decided in our mind, he's not going to do this. He's not going to show up. He's not going to work a miracle. And I'd say that we shouldn't be surprised when he doesn't work a miracle. If we don't have that faith, again, just look at the Israelites here. They failed to trust in God and, and failed to be faithful, and the resultant consequences. Right? If we fail to trust in the Lord, right? if we fail to have that hopeful expectation, in a sense, in our minds, we're sort of already doubting that God will even consider showing up and working some sort of miracle in our lives. Well, we shouldn't expect him to be gracious and kind to us and work that miracle. And we actually see this lived out in Scripture time and again, and I want to highlight that for us. So we're going to look at a few passages here. We're going to turn to the New Testament now, and we'll look first at Matthew chapter 14. Verses 22 through 32. I'll give you a moment to flip there. Again, that's Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 32. And here's what it says. Immediately he, that being Jesus, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to, uh, by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Right, so at this point, what do we see? Right, speaking here particularly of Peter, looking at Peter, and that he steps out onto the water, he's walking on the water at this point, we know he's going to start to sink. We all know the story. Right, but here is Peter saying, hey, I'm seeking something miraculous from the Lord. Say to me, come out and, and, and tell me to walk on the water and come to you. And, and so, of course, right, Jesus says, go ahead, do it. Come, walk to me. And Peter initially has faith, right? He has that hopeful expectation that here Jesus, God himself, will work a miracle. And not that Jesus has to, although in this case he said, go ahead, you can come. Uh, It's certainly cause for trusting him. But he has that hopeful expectation, of course, yes, he's going to do this miracle. I'm going to be able to walk on water. 
He has that faith. He has that hopeful expectation. He isn't doubting. He isn't saying before he even steps out onto the boat, out of the boat onto the water, man, this isn't going to work. You know, people don't walk on water. Surely it's not going to happen, right? He actually has faith. He isn't doubting. But of course, when things change, well, then the result changes, right? When he has that faith, God delights in working this miracle. Jesus delights in working this miracle and allowing him to walk on water. But, here's verse 30, but when he saw the wind, right, you can imagine Peter there, maybe Peter may not be that great at swimming, you know, maybe he got some big waves coming, so when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Right, what changes here is suddenly that faith isn't so great, so grand, right? Peter has this faith initially, and because of that, the miracle happens, right? Jesus says, of course, yep, come on out, walk on the water. He does, but then he starts to doubt. He doesn't have that strong faith as that doubt, as that feeling of, oh boy, I'm not sure that this is going to work. I'm not sure that God's going to continue with this miracle. Jesus is going to continue with this miracle of having me walk on the water. And as soon as that doubt creeps in, suddenly the miraculous starts to fade, right? And he starts sinking into the water. And we see this all over in Scripture. I'm going to look at a few other passages. But as we think of the miraculous, right, if we're really going to doubt that God's actually going to do something miraculous, even if we come before him, even if we pray and we seek that, if as we're even seeking it, we're saying, God's not going to do that. That's not so likely. If we have that doubt, if we fail to have that faith, that hopeful expectation, right, then surely God isn't going to actually do that. If we fail to have that sort of faith, again, not putting the Lord to the test saying, you have to answer my prayer, you have to do this miracle, but still there's this attitude of hopeful expectation. If we have that, God very well may decide that it's within his will and desire to do a miracle. But if we fail to have that hopeful expectation, even if he desires to do something wondrous and powerful, he's going to say, but if you don't believe, I'm not going to do it. If you don't have that faith, if instead you're going to doubt me and my power and my goodness, I'm not going to do it. And we see this all over the place. I'm going to turn just a few chapters later in Matthew to chapter 17. And this is verses 14 through 20. And I'll read it for us. Matthew 17, 14 through 20. It says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Right, of course, he's talking to Jesus here. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I know here in this case, it's it's the case of not just God doing some sort of miracle in your life, but it's actually God doing a miracle through the disciples here that we're talking about. So the disciples doing something that was wondrous and miraculous in the power of God, of course. But again, it's sort of the same idea in a sense. And what we see is where there's faith, well, then then God will do that miracle and and, and work a wonder in the case of the disciples here. If they had had that faith, then then the demon could have been cast out by the disciples. But of course, when they say, well, why couldn't we cast? this demon out, the response is, well, because of your little faith, right? You didn't have faith, you doubted, you didn't think, or you weren't certain, you didn't have the sure faith that, yes, 
God has called us to, the, the Lord Jesus has called us to this ministry of casting out demons. He's anointed us for this. We ought to have a faith and a trust in him, a hopeful expectation that he'll show up, that he'll do something wonderful and miraculous and powerful through us, in us, through us. Right? They ought to have had that faith, but instead they doubted. You know, I don't know, are we really going to be able to cast out these demons? This seems like a pretty powerful demon. I don't know that God's powerful enough, or is he really going to choose to, to empower us to be able to do this? They had doubt. They didn't have faith. And what's the result is, well, the demon wasn't cast out. The miraculous didn't take place. And the implicit statement here is, well, from Jesus is, if you had had faith, then you would have been able to cast this demon out. We see this all over the place where uh, if we have faith, again, it's not that God has to do something, but he's only going to do the miraculous if we have faith to believe that he really can and very well may delight in doing that miracle. But rather, if we sort of sell God short and expect, hey, he's not going to do it, we're already doubting him from the outset, he's not going to do the miraculous. And again, we see this elsewhere. I want to read for us now. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Just to illustrate that this this paradigm of of sort of faith and, and lack of faith and how that operates with respect to the miraculous, we just see it all throughout Scripture. So Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, so Jesus here with his disciples, they're leaving Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd... Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Right? Notice the basis for him being made well. Of course, it's, it's Jesus' power, and, 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 right? infinite power. He's God. He's able to do this. But it's, it's based on his faith, the faith of Bartimaeus, to believe that Jesus actually could or would do this. Because he has that faith, Jesus says, okay, I will work this miracle. And because of your faith, right, your faith has made you well. And the implication in that, right, is sort of the implied sort of opposite statement, in a sense, would be if you hadn't had the faith to really believe in me, to trust in me, believe in who I am, and and believe that I'm capable of working this miracle and and giving you your sight that I would even desire to do so, if you didn't have that faith, what would the result be? There wouldn't have been a miracle. And again, we see this all over the place, that when we fail to believe that God either can or will do something miraculous, then he doesn't. But if there is faith to believe that God very well may, again, not putting him to the test, not saying you have to do this because I prayed it, now you have to and I'm in control, by no means that sense, but rather this hopeful expectation of, right, we come before God, we seek something miraculous, saying, God, you are good, you are great, surely this is not beyond your power, you can do all things, and surely it is something that you very well may do, and I look with hopeful expectation toward you doing something wondrous and powerful and miraculous in my life. When we come before the Lord with that sort of attitude, if it be God's will to work a miracle, he will, because we have that faith. We're not doubting, we're not selling him short and expecting already that he won't do it. 
And again, we see this stated, not to belabor the point, but even in a few other scriptures. I'll read first James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Here it's talking about wisdom, specifically, but again, illustrating the same point about faith versus doubting. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Right? James is saying, right? God's saying that, that he wants to give people wisdom. Right? He desires to do so. And if you come before him and, and you pray for wisdom and you seek after it, God's going to give you that wisdom. But you have to pray for it and seek after it. Ask God for that wisdom with a heart attitude that really believes he's going to do that. Not saying, you know, yeah, I'll ask the Lord, but, you know, he's probably not going to give me wisdom. You know, I don't think he's apt to do something so wondrous and miraculous to, to give me wisdom that I wouldn't otherwise have. Right? If you have that sort of doubt, James is saying here, you're not going to get anything. If you doubt God, he's not going to work this miracle in your life and give you wisdom that you wouldn't otherwise have. This wondrous wisdom for God. But again, if you have faith, God will delight in doing that and give you wisdom. And again, we even see Jesus saying it himself. This is Matthew chapter 21, the last verse that I want to read to sort of illustrate this point. Verses 18 through 22. It says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Again, there's a conditional clause in there. If you have faith. Right? And I don't want us to misinterpret this to say, hey, ooh, I like this verse. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So I could just ask for a billion dollars. If I really believe it, here's a promise. I'm surely going to receive that from the Lord. That's not what's being said. But rather, whatever you ask for in prayer, as long as it's in accordance with the Lord and his will, right? God delighting to give it to you, if you ask for it, and you ask for it in a way that's characterized by faith, he'll give it to you. But again, what's implied in this is if you don't have the faith, if you don't believe that God is going to give you something, if you don't believe God's going to do something miraculous in your life, right, whatever it may be, if you lack the faith, God's not going to show up and do something wondrous, right, work some sort of miracle. If we're doubting him, then he's not going to do that for us. Again, not to say that just because we have faith, it's guaranteed that we sort of control God, whatever we pray for, if we have faith, he has to do it, done, end of story. But we ought to to come before the Lord seeking the miraculous with a hopeful expectation, right? And if we do so, if it's within God's will to do that wondrous, miraculous thing, then he will delight in doing it for us because of our faith in him. And we see that in scripture. And again, sort of coming back to the beginning uh, of, of the whole sermon, I would say that the American church is, is sort of all too guilty. And this may be true for you. I think it's true for me at times. There are times where I feel like I pray for a miracle, and already in the back of my mind, I'm sort of thinking, what's the likelihood of that? You know, is God really going to do that thing for me, for the church, whatever it is? That, that seems awfully grand, and I don't see God doing those sorts of things all day, every day. That's sort of the one in a million. I feel like I'm guilty of that at times. And I'd say just generally, the American church is guilty of that, of... Even if we bring requests to God, seeking wondrous and grand things, 
all too often our mindset is, he's just not going to do it. We have that doubt. We know he's capable of it. We have the faith to believe that he's capable of it, but we sort of doubt that he would even desire to do so or choose to do so. And so we have that doubting attitude. And because of that, I'd say that's why we fail to see the miraculous all around us. If you go to other places in the world, right, where sort of the mindset of the church is all too different in a good way, where there is this sort of hopeful expectation of the miraculous very often, I'm not saying it's always the case, but there are miraculous things that take place all over the place. In the church, right, we see that taking place in those parts of the, the world and the church in those places because they have that hopeful expectation. They're not saying as they come before the Lord praying for wondrous, miraculous, grand things, oh, he's not going to do that. But rather, they really have that hopeful expectation. God's powerful. He's great. He's wondrous. He's good. He's kind. Why not? Why should I doubt that God very well may do this wondrous, miraculous thing in my life or the life of someone else? And because they have that faith, God is active and moving in wondrous and powerful and grand and miraculous ways. But I think in the American church, we're all too often, as I said, sort of doubting God from the outset, expecting he's not really going to do it. And as a result, we fail to see the miraculous all around us because we don't have that faith. And so God says, if you don't have that faith, I'm not going to do miraculous, grand things because of that. And so I just sort of want to challenge us as a church, especially as I think of our situation here, 2019. We know this is a big year. This is an important year for us. We need to sort of step out in faith and and serve the Lord faithfully, reach out to our community, connect with our community, be faithful witnesses for Christ, be a light for him, reflect the love of Christ all around us. We have this great calling that God has called us to this year. This is an important year. I want to challenge us to live out what we've been talking about Uh, What we historically as an American church have struggled with, this hopeful expectation, sort of this hopeful expectation of the miraculous in our lives. And I want to challenge us as a church to really pray big and wondrous and grand things, whether in our lives as we seek the miraculous in our lives or in the collective life of the church. Right, that we would pray wondrous, big, grand, miraculous things for New Hope Chapel, that God would be active here in us, through us, not just in small ways, but in big ways. And again, as we do so, then to have that heart attitude of hopeful expectation, not praying wondrous, grand things, but then saying, yeah, what are the odds that's going to happen? But rather praying those wondrous, grand things and saying, God, why not? You're good, you're powerful, you're wondrous, you're kind, and having that hopeful expectation that God very well, with a reasonable degree of likelihood, very well may show up and do something wondrous. Having that hopeful expectation. And I really think that if we as a church live that out, if we pray big and wondrous and grand things and have that hopeful expectation of the miraculous in our lives, God's going to do the miraculous in our lives. And I don't mean that each and every day that something so over-the-top supernatural is necessarily going to happen in your lives. But I'm just saying as a general pattern, if we really trust that God is a God who, who is powerful, who is good, who does the miraculous and has done the miraculous through history time and time and time again, if we really believe that, and if we have that heart attitude of trusting that God is that God and really will show up and do the miraculous, then he's going to. We see him do that all throughout the scripture. And so I just want to challenge us to pray those big grand things in our lives and the life of the church and really have that hopeful expectation. And if we do, God's going to show up. He'll do some wondrous and incredible things. That doesn't mean he's always going to show up exactly the way we want and do exactly what we want. But he will certainly at times show up in great and powerful ways. And it will result in blessing. As God works miraculous things in our lives, the life of the church, it'll be a blessing for us. And he'll be superbly glorified in all of it as God shows forth his power, his kindness, his goodness, what a great glory it is to him in his name. And so he delights in doing those things for our goodness, for our blessing, 
for his glory. So let's be a people characterized by hopeful expectation of the miraculous. And let's pray. Lord God, may we learn from the people of Israel and their failing, as we read about in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. May we not be like them, but rather learn from them. May we be always, as we should be, a people of hopeful expectation of the miraculous. All too often, we know that you're capable of wondrous things, but we really don't expect you to do wondrous, miraculous things in our lives. And that doesn't honor you. That's not glorifying you in our lives, but rather we should be a people that, yes, understands your great power, but also understands your continued goodness and that you continue to be a God who delights in working wonders all over the place. And as we come before you, may we bring to you grand prayers, big prayers, asking you for wondrous, miraculous things and to do so with that hopeful expectation. Not already deciding in our minds that you're not going to answer that prayer, that you're not going to show up, that you're not going to do something miraculous, but truly having that hopeful expectation And then may you, in accordance with your will, with your kindness and goodness and power, may you do the miraculous in our lives for our blessing, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.